Well, there's a member of this congregation who now lives in Alabama and Glenn, and he's been complaining because he gets to sleep apparently by listening to my sermons. And he's not been happy because I haven't spoken for a long time. So, um, hi, Glenn. Hope you sleep well tonight. <laughs> or whenever this gets up. Uh, we are uh, proceeding through 1 Peter. Uh, the great Martin Luther, who was famous for a number of things, but he was, uh, before he caused such a ruckus, he was a professor of the scriptures. He really knew the Bible. His favourite book became the book of Romans, which I know is some people in this church's favourite book of the 66 books. John was his second favourite, but his third favourite was 1 Peter. He thought it was one of the most noble books in the New Testament. So if you're not very familiar with 1 Peter, uh, do yourself and your heart and your life a favour and uh, read it a few times. It's quite wonderful and there's depth in it. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help uh, that we would hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to us. Uh, please give us open hearts and minds. Please guide me in what to say and what not to say. And please change us now. Uh, through Jesus Christ we ask it. Amen. One of my favourite true stories um, is based in Russia before the uh, Russian Revolution, the Communist Revolution. And uh, it, it revolves around a Russian rabbi, a Jewish sort of uh, minister. And he was a bit depressed uh, for a number of reasons. His people were being persecuted. Um, he didn't feel that they were taking all the work and the teaching he was doing all that seriously. And he went for a, a walk at night in the snow. It was cold. And he was ruminating and thinking and praying. And he walked through a large set of gates, which he almost didn't notice. And then he heard a very rude voice shout at him, Who are you? And why are you here? And he... He looked at where the voice came from and saw the soldier. And then again, the man repeated, Who are you? And what is your business here? And the rabbi said, He said, How much do you get paid? The soldier was a bit perplexed by that question. And then the rabbi said this, Whatever you get paid, I'll pay you twice as much to come and live in my house and every day ask me those two questions. Who are you and why am I here? They take us to two big questions that at some point or other we will play with in our lives. Sometimes they're answered almost unconsciously and we're just doing what our society has told us to do. Who are you and why on earth are you here? What's the purpose of our life? Now, 1 Peter 2 is one of a few passages that is sort of given to us by God to give us a very clear and unexpected answer to that question from God's point of view. If you want to know who you are, listening to the person who made you might just be a clue. Otherwise, you will just be a mass-produced person of your own moment and culture. and often leads to terrible regrets. But to hear what God says... Now, this is particularly what he's saying to people who put their faith in Jesus. Who are we and what is our purpose? So we'll look at those two things. And then last one, one little secret this passage gives us in how to flourish in being who we are and fulfilling the purpose that God has made us for. So firstly, 
Who are you? Well, I'm going to just draw your attention to three verses, mostly, from this passage that give us a clue as to who you are. And I suggest it might not be the answer you might have given for yourself. Here's what God says. Verse 4. As you come to him, that he's talking about Jesus, the Lord, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of words there, a lot of important words. But we're told who we are and given a clue as to why we are. You are, if you're a Christian person, a living stone. Well, that's helpful, isn't it? Right? That'll help you work out how to live. But it's talking about, it's, it's bouncing off the fact that Jesus is described as a living stone. I, I presume the word living is so you don't think it's made, that he's made of marble or granite or something like that. And living also because he's the resurrected one. He ever lives. And he is the cornerstone, as you heard read in verse 6, where God says, See, I'm laying in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone. Later on, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus is called the cornerstone. Where does Peter get that idea from? Well, he gets it from where any half-decent Christian should get it from. He gets it from his master. In a couple of the Gospels, Matthew 21 is the obvious time, Jesus tells a story and then quotes from Isaiah 26, or so he could have quoted from Psalm 118, where this idea of God placing a cornerstone and people's response to the cornerstone is a very important part of what God is doing. Now, you may well think, I have no, what is a cornerstone? Why is it? Well, if you're a builder say if you're building a temple or something like that, or any big building that you're building with stones, not bricks, you need to get the cornerstone right. Because the cornerstone, you didn't have sort of magic saws that you could saw your way through granite or sandstone then. You had to cut it and chip it and some hope it would fall right. And sometimes you'd make two or three goes before you'd get a cornerstone that was just right. But you had to get it right. Because once you put the cornerstone down, all the other angles of the building flow from it. Because you, you build it and then all the stones along the front have got to be lined up with it. All the ones down the side have got to be lined up. It's got to be facing the right direction, etc. That's very important. You get the cornerstone wrong, the whole building is out of alignment. Or if the cornerstone is weak. And God has given us a cornerstone for building our lives on and being a part of. And the cornerstone is Jesus. One of the things that you, you'll notice through the book of um, 1 Peter is how often it talks about well, the two things we've already picked up, haven't we, in chapter 1, is that Christians are people who are holy, that is, we belong to him. Secondly, we're people of hope. We know where we're going and it's good. Thirdly, we're people who are going to be experiencing hardship. And the reason we experience hardship is because we've locked ourselves in with a person who was rejected in his own day. And we are not better or worse people than the people of Jesus' day. It is the standard procedure of the human race to reject Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, as the central part of life. We're all, as it were, building our lives in some sort of a project. Often we don't stop and reflect on it all that often. But what the Bible says again and again is that the builders reject the cornerstone, the guys who should have known better, 
But then people, generally speaking, say to Jesus, no, you will not be the cornerstone of my life. I will make it up as I go. Right? Because that's what my society has told me to do. So I'll be a good, obedient little person and I'll do what I'm told to do and find the truth within myself, at least for this week, and just hope it's the same in two weeks' time. Or you can use the cornerstone God has given. Jesus is the cornerstone and we are called living stones. Now, in Paul will pick up the idea of Jesus as the cornerstone, but he never does what Peter does here and says, you want to understand yourself, you are living stones attached to the cornerstone. Who are you? Is that helpful? Now you understand all the mysteries of your life. You are a living stone attached to the living stone. You are a part of a building. So I've got here some of the magic, impressive St. Matthew's bricks. Right? Uh, bought for nearly nothing. And then for many, 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 many hours, people cleaned them up. And there's a whole lot of them here. And they look quite nice. And here's a few more. The significance of the individual brick is not actually found in and of itself. So what this passage is saying, if you want to understand yourself, it's more corporate than you might think. It's not just about little old you, although little old you matters, as the Bible says. We understand who we are by firstly belonging, understanding who we belong to, and secondly, the us part of it. We are living stones being built into a temple. So you may not have been to many temples, but you are a temple. Right? You could actually say, I'm going to St. Matthew's to go to the temple, to be the people of God. The temple is the place where heaven and earth touch. The temple was the place where you could go to meet God. And God is building a new temple. He's not much interested. In fact, he's not interested at all in temples. Right? He's got a new temple, which is his people, built on Jesus. Who are we? We are the temple. We are his temple. We're the place where God lives and moves and does his work. It's interesting that Peter is one of the very, very few letters in the New Testament that never uses the word church. Just does, he doesn't ever use it. But so much of the time, that's what he's talking about. What does it mean to be the church? It means to be the temple of God. And we all play a part in it. And the way it works when you make bricks are, are, you know, mass-produced but when you're generally speaking building a temple in that, they're often quite different shapes and sizes of stones, which is part of what we're like. So firstly, you are part of the, you're a living stone attached to Jesus, and you are now the part of the temple that God is building. Secondly, he says, you're a priest. I don't know if you think of yourself as a priest. What does it say? You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, that is a temple, to be a holy priesthood. So you're not just the building where God meets with people, but you are actually the, the staff of the building as well. You're a priest. I don't know if you think about yourself much as a priest. I sometimes get called a priest. I don't particularly like the word um, because it, it, priest means a bridge person. That's what it is. It's a bridge person. Almost all religions have priests, someone who is the contact point between us ordinary people and the spiritual stuff. And they're very powerful, often paid quite a lot because they can scare you with what they can do because they're in touch with the other side and with the powers. But the Bible says 
that there's only one priest, really, or there's hundreds and thousands of priests, whichever way you like to look at it. Jesus Christ is the great high priest. He is the, the final sacrificing priest. He's offered the one true final sacrifice for sins. He is the great priest. But here it says, we are all priests. So you are as much a priest as I am. You're as much a priest as the Pope is. Right? We're all priests, he says. We're all living stones making up the temple and we are all, the, we are all doing the priestly work. Now, not sacrificial work, but we're doing the work of, of mediating. We're praying for people. We have access to God as the priest did. The priests were able to draw closer to God. You can do that in Jesus Christ. You can draw right up close to God. And we offer, well, the Bible, we'll come back. But there are sacrifices we offer, but they're not bloody. And they're nothing like the old sacrifices, but it, we use that word. So you want to know who you are? You are the temple of God. You are a living brick insofar as you're attached to Jesus. It's unusual, isn't it? Some of you will know the great military city Sparta was an ugly, was an ugly culture in many ways, although I was brought up to think how cute it all was, but it was a violent, um, not a good place for all sorts of people. But the Spartan king used to brag about the walls of Sparta that were invincible and insurmountable. And one of his uh, fellow sort of leaders of one of the other great cities in Greece finally visited Sparta. And he said to the king, where, where, are, where are these magnificent walls that you say are invincible, etc.? And the king of Sparta pointed to his army. He said, there, every man a brick. And that was that sort of idea. Saying they, didn't have, they didn't have walls, even. They didn't think they needed them. Every man was a brick. So what the scriptures are saying, friends, is if you're a Christian person, you're attached to Jesus, you are a brick. You are part of the building of God's temple and you are a priest. You have a part to play, a very important part to play in holding the whole thing together. So who are we? It's an unusual answer. We are priests. Martin Luther writes, let everyone therefore who knows themselves to be Christian be assured of this, that we are all equally priests. Uh, there are people like me who have a particular job to do uh, in the people of God, but I'm not a priest. Although I, have a, I had a friend, Jason Page, he's gone to glory, but he was the minister at Western Creek. And when we'd sometimes have lunch together to catch up, one time we were chatting away and we were chatting to this waitress at this place and, and she said, what do you guys do? And Jason said, we're priests. And I said to him after, I said, well, why, why would you say that? That's a bit creepy. And I know that some people claim to be priests, but he said, and if we say we're ministers in Canberra, they're going to think we work in the big house. So if, at least if we say we're priests, they've got some idea that we're running around doing something to do with the church. So, okay. Who are you? Asked the soldier. We are priests. We're rocks. We'll come back to that. Secondly, why are we here? When you received Christ and were forgiven, why didn't God just take you home? Why does he leave you here for years of up and downs and miseries and difficulties and temptations, etc.? What's our purpose? What's our business? Well, it's told partly in the fact, it's told in two places, in verse 9, and in the fact that we're called priests. What do priests do? They've got a job to do. He says here, they're offering spiritual sacrifices. They're not sacrifices, spiritual ones, things that aren't physical. 
And the Bible is very clear on that, isn't it? So you'll, you'll know the most famous of passages is Romans 12. He spent all this time explaining the, the beautiful grace and mercy of God and how much it costs God and how perfect the forgiveness is. And then he says, Now, I entreat you, brothers and sisters, in light of the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. So the sacrifice you give to God, first and foremost, is all of you. Body, mind, spirit, wallet, life plans, diary, we give ourselves to God. Right? That's sometimes spoken of as a sacrifice. In, in Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul will speak about the money that the Philippians churches had sent to him. He said, I didn't really need it, and thank you, but I'm, I'm kind of glad for your sake you've given it because it's indicative of a good heart. He calls it a sacrifice. Right? The money that they gave was a sacrifice. In Hebrews 13, it talks about the sacrifice of praising lips. Things that we offer to God in various forms can be called our sacrifice, our work as priests. It's a very high office. You can't have a relationship with God unless you have a priest. You cannot stroll into God's presence on your own and say, G'day. You need someone to have dealt with your sin. This is what Christ does. But then we are the people who have access to the Father through him and a position of love and service to our neighbours. Then in verse 9, which is one of the most outstanding verses, one of the sort of verses, very good to know this verse because it answers so many questions. Listen to what he says about identity and then purpose. You are, it's yous, it's a plural. We are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. These are some of the highest uh, descriptors of the people of God in the Old Testament. A chosen people, a people of God have said, yes, I'll, I'll take those ones. A royal priesthood, it's kind of weird because you can't be royalty and a priest in Israel. The priests come from the tribe of Levi. The kings come from the tribe of Judah. You can't be a royal priest. But you can when God does his thing. So we are royalty, whether you're a mad, keen Republican or not. You are the son or the daughter of the king of the universe. You are royalty. Um, but you're also a priest. It's a royal priesthood. We have this free access to the presence of God, often on behalf of others. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that is, you belong to him. And this beautiful expression, it's hard to translate God's special treasure, God's special possession. Right? You're precious to him. He's told us that Jesus is precious to him. But when you put your faith in Christ, you find that you are precious to him. You are his special possession. That's who we are. doesn't matter what you feel like, right? what your self-esteem is saying to you, that's who you are. Very, very high office and privilege. And then it says this. Here's the purpose. So that, or that, you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Boy, that, don't we need that? So we're called out of the darkness. That's what God has done. At some point in your life, God drew you out of the darkness. It might have been when you were young and you hardly noticed it happening. But at some point, God has called you to himself into the light into the truth of God and his ways. So that 
you can declare the praises of him. This is the most instinctive thing that you find yourself doing. Right? Uh, praise, as we've talked about in the past, is not, we, we don't praise God because God is somehow or other insecure, like a vain person who needs to be told whoever so terribly wonderful he is. That's the way it's sent up sometimes. It's not at all it. Praise is a thing that, unless you're not well, you'll be doing it all the time. Praise is when you look at someone or something and say, isn't that fantastic? Isn't that wonderful? Um, I watched the Matildas the other day. I have very little understanding of that game. It's the world game. I prefer the game that's played in heaven, but that's, you know, that's what they call them. So. But anyway, I watched the Matildas, expecting us to maybe get beaten, and we flogged the Canadians. Right? And even I could see they did some great stuff. So I did find myself saying to friends, wasn't it fantastic? You know, blah, 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 blah. I've, we were on holidays. Sunsets. I mean, how dull is a sunset? There's one every day. There's all over the world. Who cares? But I did find myself once or twice. We went fishing. Alice and I went fishing at uh, some place up north somewhere. And um, we'd been at church that morning and asked the minister, any of you people here really good fisher people? And he showed us this bloke, so we went and got a tip. He said, Harvey Bay, you won't catch anything at the moment, but here's a, this is the best place to go. So Alice and I went to this beautiful beach uh, just as the sun was setting. And it's good for someone like me because I, I can stand still when I'm fishing. And it was just gorgeous. And it was very hard not to say to Alison, look at that, isn't that fantastic? That's praise. Uh, there was um, a, a group of missionaries working in some of the islands of Indonesia and they were translating the language and they had been there for a couple of years and they noted a strange thing about the language and therefore the culture. There was no word for thank you. And some of them were thinking, what a weird culture that doesn't say thank you. And when they'd been there for a bit longer, they discovered they had this other phrase that they used instead, and it was this. If, if I had done something, no, let's put it the other way. If you've done something nice to me, right, a generous, kind, forgiving, whatever, all those things that I need from you, um, the way that you say thank you is this. I will speak well of your name. That's a bit longer than thanks. I will speak well of your name. Now, that's what praise is. Thanks is when you say, I'm feeling a bit grateful. Praise is saying, you are terrific, and I will speak well of you. And so what we're called on to do, friends, here, according to this verse, this very important verse, having told us who we are, is that we may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And it actually, the, the word praise is, is the sense of the praiseworthy deeds, that you will speak of what God has done. We do it here in church. It troubles me sometimes when I see some people not doing it with any heart and soul. Because you can, I tell you, it's, it's funny doing weddings and sometimes funerals. You can see people standing there, they are not going to sing. That's okay, I respect them for that. It's a bit odd sometimes when Christians just stand there and don't think, hang on. Um, part of the, our reason for being is to be those who do see God and respond properly to declare his praises. But here's the thing with praises. This, this phrase is also, it, it's got the sense of placarding the, the glorious things. So if, if there'd been an advertising company in that, they would use this word to, de, to declare or placard the glorious things that God has done, right? Like making a pretty flippin' nice world. Right? Like making getting the nourishment you need quite enjoyable, didn't have to be. You could have been like eating grass. Every day was zucchinis, but it's not. Right? He's made even something as, as just essential as that. 
pleasurable, enjoyable. But all that's nonsense, isn't it? Compared to what he's done in Jesus. Right? He dies for you. I, I put up uh, some music on Facebook for the three people over 70 who look at Facebook. Um, and this song that one of my daughters sent me, and it, it's got this beautiful lines about the one who made the world thinks the world of me. I think that's quite good poetry. And then he says, the king of heaven loves a fool. And I go, oh, thank God he does. I'm in with a chance. And the song is about just the sheer wonder of the fact that God even notices, but he loves. He loves a fool like me. He loves a tiny little person like me and us. And he gives his only beloved, his precious son. We're told in these verses that this, this one is precious to God. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He's done amazing things. And if we see it, you really can't help yourself. You don't need to be told. You need to be told to shut up and sit down because it is so wonderful. Because you see, when, when you're caught up in a healthy sort of relationship with God, attached to the living stone and vibrating at the same sort of tenor as he is, it's what it says is this, verse 7. The world does reject Jesus. The nicest people that you know, some of the smartest, some of the dumbest, they just, I don't need the cornerstone. Thanks God for nothing. I don't need it. I can be a mass-produced person. Then it says this. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. There was a book written hundreds of years ago called he is, uh, That Jesus is the Precious One. Yeah, it's worth thinking. Do you just sort of technically believe in Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or is he precious to you? See, we own, as people, you know, uh, living where we do, we own so much stuff, so much clothes, so much junk, so much nice junk. But we don't have much that's precious, do we? That you would perhaps risk your life to keep or save if it was in danger? But Jesus is precious to those who know him. And if you know him in that way, speaking of him to others becomes quite natural, apart from the fact that it says here, that you may declare the praise of him. Let me read you this before we move on. The, the, the call and experience of being grateful to God and praising God is the same energy that leads us to share the news of Jesus with others. Not just their desperate need of Jesus, Listen to Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. It's important here. You see, it's not God saying, praise me, praise me, praise me. It's people who've seen God saying, this guy is fantastic. Let us praise him. Then he says this, verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations. That's the non-Israelites. His marvellous deeds among all the people. See, the same Excitement at the beauty of God and the wonder at what God has done for us and is doing for us leads us to praise him, sometimes in church, sometimes on our own. It also leads us to tell of the glorious deeds of God to others. That is what we would call gospel sharing or evangelism. It is speaking of the glorious deeds of God seen in Jesus, his death and his magnificent resurrection and the awful full and free forgiveness. Why are we here? to do the priestly work and to do this praising, talking work, at least according to 1 Peter. 
And I think Peter's probably got a bit of a clue about the purpose of Christians. Follow me, Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. Who are we? Why are we here? All right. How are we going to do this? How are we going to get the energy to do this? Because many of us say, yeah, yeah, you know, I kind of knew that. I even knew that we were stones and stuff like that. And we're all part of this thing that God is building. Jesus saying, I will build my church. I will build my church, he says. He's doing it. Well, how do we get the energy to flourish in this? I want to draw your attention to verse 2 and verse 4. Verse 2 says this. He's already told them that twice in chapter 1 that they have been born again. New life has been placed from outside in our hearts that has brought us to sense our our need of a saviour, trust the saviour, follow him. And then it says we need to grow. Here, verse 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. The first thing he says here is to crave pure spiritual milk. You all know that when a baby drinks milk, that is the thing that makes it grow. There's no apparent link, is there? If you, if you just came from another planet, you'd see babies you know, drinking from their mother's breasts or maybe out of a bottle. You wouldn't know that's the absolute key, isn't it, for them to grow. If they don't drink milk, they will, thrive, they will, they will shrivel up and eventually die. The baby desperately needs milk. And what he's saying here is, if you want to grow, which of course you do, you don't want to be a Peter Pan Christian just staying as a little baby. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Now he's not saying this is for little baby Christians. They need the pure spiritual milk, but when you become mature, right, you don't need it. No, no, no. He's not. The Apostle Paul will speak like that about people who are mature Christians and people who are only baby Christians. And often enough, it's the people who think they're ever so terribly mature are actually babies. But what he's saying here is, no, 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 you, what you need to do is to crave for the spiritual, like a newborn baby. And if you've seen a newborn baby, unless there's something wrong with them, they are looking for the breast, they're looking for milk with a level of desperation. There's sort of a, a bit of an OCD-ness about them. Right? They couldn't give a fig how beautiful their mother is. They couldn't give a fig just how scarily ugly the, their dad is. They don't care what colour the nursery is. They just want milk. And these absolutely gorgeous little creatures can make the most horrendous noises if they haven't got the milk. They are craving for it. And God is saying to us here, crave for the pure spiritual milk. Go crazy for it. You need it. You will not grow. You may well die if you don't get fed. There's something seriously wrong with any of us who says we're Christian, who can go for days, a week, months, without feeding on the pure word of God. I know a midwife, and um, a little while ago there was a baby that was born much faster than they thought it was. The waters broke. And the, the doctors gave the mother some morphine, which is one of God's good gifts when used properly. But the baby was out in 45 minutes. It was supposed to take, it was the first baby they're supposed to take a little while. So the baby came out and it was high or low or whatever you are on, on heroin or morphine. So it just lay there, right? And uh, it didn't cry. And six hours later, the, the mum and the dad, who were first time mums and dads, so how would they know? They're saying, it's great, isn't it? The baby's just sleeping. So the nurse said, 
you're supposed to feed it every three hours. What's going on? So they, they woke up to see there was something wrong with the baby. You know, the baby would be fine now. But the baby was, it was on opiates. It needs to get off those, right? And see, babies cry for milk. And what, what God is saying to you, you want to grow, you need to grow. Of course you want to grow. You need to be feeding on the milk, on the pure spiritual milk. He's been talking just the verses before about the word of God. This is what you do. If you're not doing it, you are starving yourself to death. You're also saying to God, oh, God, you want to talk to me? Well, I don't want to listen. But of course I'm Christian. Please bless me. There's something deeply wrong with us. And I'm pointing this at myself as well. If we can just treat the word of God as an optional extra, See, you can say, oh, I go to St. Matt's, we really regard the Bible. Well, bully for that. It's a question of do you yourself feed on the pure word of God? I've noticed quite often that people who are quite confident to be critical of all sorts of things in a church are not people who are reading the Bible regularly. They're not feeding, but they're very good at passing judgment on all sorts of things. If you're not reading the scriptures regularly, you are in no fit state to pass judgment on anything. You're in desperate ill health and in in bad health, arrogance and a spirit of criticism often thrives. So the first thing he says, crave for pure spiritual. That's why we're doing this soap thing. Okay, there's many different ways to read the Bible, but we wanted to make it somewhat easy for us. Okay, I can look up tomorrow morning. We're on Mark chapter one, one to 20. Excellent. Right. And just read it and feed ourselves on the pure spiritual milk. Not an MP3 interesting chat about something to do with spirituality. That's not pure spiritual milk. This is the pure spiritual milk. All right, that's the first thing. And you will grow. He doesn't say you'll grow yourself. As you feed, God will grow you into a mature, useful Christian, a handy rock to have around the building. Secondly, and this is very important, verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, you are being built up into a spiritual house. See, it's, we are on about the Bible. The way that we sometimes talk about it here at church is this. We're a Bible-based church, but a Christ-centred church. It is possible, sadly, to be all excited about the Bible, etc., but not to actually be Christ-focused. Uh, so he's saying, yes, feed on the Word of God, but come to Christ. It's a, it's a present. Keep on bringing yourself to Jesus, the, the cornerstone. Keep aligning yourself with Him and saying, "Okay, is this actually what Jesus says?" And you might need to shuffle a bit back, oh, okay, to get the alignment properly. Keep coming to Jesus Himself, and allow Him to build you up, and for the temple of God to be built up and made stronger and healthier. Uh, so that's what He's saying here. Who are you? Why are you here? You are the temple of God. You're a priest, an an intermediary for many people. And we are here to do the work of priests, to give generously, as it says in Philippians, and to speak here alone in praise to God and to share the praises of God of the great things he's done with those who are still in the dark and have not yet tasted mercy. Well, I'd like to say more, but I best not. Um, Oh, I was supposed to tell you about Slider, wasn't I? Because we're going to have questions straight afterwards. Is it behind you? So people have already been doing it? Two? Okay. Well, let's pray in a minute. Josh is going to run the the Slider thing. And we'll do... And maybe one or two quick questions as well before we pray. 
Joshua. Yeah, so uh, feel free to chuck in some more questions. Just use the code on the screen that's now there. Uh, the first question that came in, do the references to chosen people and others being destined to be stones that make, that make people stumble suggest predestination? Yes. Great. Moving on, or you want to say more? We can spend hours going round and round this tree and you'll be no further up than you were before. God is simply very clear that, that ultimately we are so lost that if he doesn't intervene sovereignly and put new life in us, we will never turn to him. At the same time, it's very clear according to Jesus and the apostles that we are also responsible for our choices. How you bring those two suckers together, no idea. We can spend hours and hours and hours and hours playing it, you'll be none the wiser. You simply either accept what God says about that or you think, well, this is an interesting intellectual conundrum. No, no, no. The God of the cross can be trusted with this. So, yes, it does suggest predestination. Fantastic. Thank you. And um, the second question we've got is a royal priesthood, a priest, a royal priesthood for the king or for the priests that are royal? Why is the word oh, royal okay. in there? Yeah. Okay. So if I make it, so they're saying, is it not so much that we're royal, but we're priests to the king, to God the king? I guess it could be both. Okay. In, fact, um, in fact, I think it, it, is, it is both, isn't it? Because we are drawing near to the king, the king who loves a fool, which is one of his strong points. Um, but yeah, we are sons and daughters of the king. Yeah, great. Um, a really helpful question that's just come through. Uh, what does it mean to grow up in your salvation? How can we do that? Ah, well, the nice thing is that God tells you exactly how you can do it. Let me read you what he says. He says... Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. What is our part to do? It is to crave and therefore to drink the spiritual milk and you will grow up. God will do that. You'll grow up in your understanding. You'll grow up in your passion for that which is right, your hatred for that which is sinful in your own life and your understanding of the things that matter. So it, it, what he's, it's actually saying, you do your work, which is to feed on the word of God, and he will make sure you grow up in your salvation. Mm. There's, there's more that could be said, but that's all this passage is saying. Yeah, great. Um, so good. And kind of off the back of that as well, uh, is there anything else that's pure spiritual milk along with God's word? For example, prayer and meeting with other Christians and communion, or is it just this spiritual milk referring to the word of God here? Well, the context at the end of chapter two is all about the word of God. So that's why most people have thought its primary thing is on, its emphasis is on the, the word of God. And the Bible it often speaks of itself in terms of that which nourishes you and causes you to grow. There are those things, prayer and fellowship and the sacraments together, etc., are all good things. But I think this is saying the pure spiritual milk is, is here. Um, but other things can be done. And there is a strange, we have a, you'll find in your own heart, I think, a strange allergy at times to slowing down and reading the scriptures, which is why a number of us find it really helpful that you can now download things on your phone where it will read the Bible to you. Sometimes I'm having my coffee and I'm about to have a quiet time and I just, I don't know why, I just think, I think I'd rather listen to it. I'm just, I'm tired of looking at books maybe. But there are all sorts of things that can help you listen to the pure word. Brother, we, 
Not so much now, but there was a period when our Christian brothers and sisters behind the Iron Curtain would weep when they were given a, a, one book of the Bible because they just desperately wanted to hear the Word of God. And we sit here with these books on our, you know, and, and we don't read it. And, and the longer you don't read it, the more the allergy will get stronger. And when you least want it, it's a bit like exercise, and I know about exercise. I'm a, look at me. When you least want to do it is when you probably most need to do it. So to pray and read it and God will change your heart as you read it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, brother. It's been so helpful, so convicting. We'll go last question that will be really helpful for us as we head to the weeks and then you can pray for us. Uh, off the back of verse 9, what are some practical ways we can declare the praises of God in our everyday lives to those who are very unfamiliar with him? Right. We have a great course called Just Listen. Um, Later on in this book, it will say that you can say a lot by the way you live in close relationships and husbands and wives situations, and that's important. But this is a talking word. Um, I would think just to, just to say little bits, like as I, you would have heard me, just things like when people speak out what they did on the weekend, talk about going to church. It's amazing the conversations you can have just by saying, you know, I had a great time at church. We sang some great songs. Or there was a sermon that was quite interesting. Don't lie. Right? Just wait. Andrew Vell is preaching next week, so you'll be able to say it. But just, just to be honest about things and, and not keep on censoring yourself. I think one of the things I find frustrating is fine Christian people don't let people know they're Christian because everyone they know doesn't like Christians or they think they don't like them. So that just means that the person who they do like who loves Jesus, they never know they're Christian. So they get to keep the media-driven picture of how awful Christians are, and we keep it all nice and secret. And brothers and sisters, there are people in our community who are desperate to hear about God. But we keep silent just to let people know. And remember, you're talking about a good God who loves, died for our sins, and conquered death. It's, it's, it's a very positive way of speaking about the glorious deeds God has done. I should shut up, shouldn't I? I think you should pray. What okay. a wonderful opportunity we have. We're in need of his help. I'll pray and then Elizabeth will lead us in a few prayers. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your precious son and you gave him to be the cornerstone uh, for our life together, uh, to be your temple, to be even priests on your behalf. is just breathtaking and a little confusing. But Father, help us to be those people who do crave and drink the pure spiritual milk that you would cause us to grow and that we would be those who keep coming to Jesus so you will build us up to make us more effective in the wonderful tasks you give your children to do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.